great to see you all fellowshipping together and uh, enjoying one another, enjoying God together, enjoying fellowship, and uh, enjoying conversation, uh, catching up with one another. So great to see the way all of you as a church love one another and love to care for one another, and especially in that time of the break that, uh, that we have together. Well, uh, thank you all for being here this morning. It is a joy to be with you once again and to be able to open the Word of God here with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and uh, please, please turn with me if you have your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, that will be where we are looking at the Word of God together. Exodus chapter 15. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 of Exodus 15 together this morning. And so as we have been going through our current sermon series here at Christ Community, the, the Seeing Christ in All of Scripture sermon series and going through the Old Testament, getting a bit of a flyover of the Old Testament, uh, there's been times where our pastors have really been burdened for us to settle down, to hone in on a certain passage, and uh, just see what God has to say to us through it. So this Sunday, we're going to backtrack a little bit and do just that. We're going to hone in on this passage here in Exodus 15, dial in on this victory song of the Israelites after they crossed the Red Sea. And brothers and sisters, there is some real gold in this passage that is meant to bolster our confidence in God's faithfulness to us no matter what we face day in and day out. In, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Christ figure, Aslan the Lion, is hinted at throughout the story as the children face various trials on their way to, uh, to see him and to conquer the evil in the land of Narnia. And as they face these trials, they greatly anticipate the arrival of King Aslan, the great lion who would surely defeat suffering and and end the evil and the cold and the winter in Narnia. Listen to the description of Aslan when they see him for the first time. Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures. The children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they caught just a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembling. Well, symbolizing great realities of God's likeness, this description of Aslan echoes prevailing themes about God which are proclaimed here in Exodus 15. And so church, I invite you to go with me to Narnia this morning and see how God is both good and terrible at the same time. And ultimately, how that is something for all the redeemed of God to celebrate together just as the Israelites did here in this passage. And before we read the passage together, it's necessary to to set up a bit of context as to what's going on here. So 
Remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were in bondage to one of the most oppressive, oppressive regimes in the world at the time. But God was faithful to his people. He raised up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, conquered the Egyptians through a series of miraculous plagues, and perhaps most miraculous of all, he led his people across the raging Red Sea on dry ground with the Egyptian army being destroyed by the sea as they tried to chase down the people of God. Now this song here in Exodus 15 is the people's proclamation of praise to God for their miraculous salvation. And uh, it's also important to note that back in Exodus 3, God declared his covenant name to Moses for the first time. Moses was was being raised up to lead the people of God And God declared to Moses for the first time his covenant name to his people. You see, God's chief purpose, his number one priority in this entire salvation story was to have a people for himself, for his glory and for his namesake. And so in Exodus 3 verse 14, God declares to Moses that his name is I am who I am. I am who I am. I am. Literally, God's name in the Hebrew language is the first person form of the word to be. Church, this this is awesome. God's name is simply I am. I am. And the way that that is communicated in the Hebrew is glorious in that there is no beginning and there's no end to that action of being. He simply is. I am who I am is the name of our God. And that's where the name Yahweh comes from. Perhaps you've heard that before. Yahweh is actually the third person form of that word to be. It literally means, Yahweh literally means he is. He is. No beginning, no end, none before him, none after him. He is. Church, this is our God. Yahweh, he is, is his covenant name. And that covenant name establishes an intimate love relationship with his people. Yahweh, believer in Jesus, is your God. The reason I tell you that is that our passage here in Exodus 15 is filled with God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's a focal point in the passage. And in your English translations, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's a translation of God's covenant name, Yahweh. And so oftentimes as I'm reading the Old Testament, I like to replace the all caps Lord with Yahweh to invoke in my own mind and heart the inexpressible glory of our self-existent, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. And so allow me, as we read the passage together, to do just that. And you'll see why it's so important. And looking now to Exodus 15, may we look at it with an eye toward the glory of our King Yahweh, who, like King Aslan, is both good and terrible at the same time. And how that reality is something for us to rejoice in with unspeakable awe. Let us read together Exodus chapter 15. Verses 1 to 18. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he 
has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. The title of the message this morning is The Song of Moses, Yahweh's Power and Faithfulness. Let's pray together. Yahweh, our God, we are in awe of who you are. Father, you are both good and terrible at the same time, but because you are on our side, that is something for us to rejoice in. Yahweh, we thank you for your power and your faithfulness. I pray that you would reveal it to us in an ever-increasing way through your word this morning. And that just as the Israelites sang this victory song, so too would our hearts explode with joy at your power, at your faithfulness to conquer your enemies and to save your redeemed. Father, I thank you that all of this is made possible because in your loving kindness, in your grace, In your mercy, you sent your son to this earth to save 
sinners. And you've shown your power and faithfulness in sending him to the cross, raising him from the dead, and giving us life with you. Father, I pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word and that it would strengthen us to rejoice in the greatness of who you are. pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, this song here that the Israelites exclaimed after their salvation is really one that should and is to be exclaimed and rejoiced in by all of Yahweh's redeemed people. Picture the Israelites before this moment. Hundreds of thousands of people stuck, if you will, between a rock and a hard place. Think about it. With the raging Red Sea in front of them and the mighty Egyptian army in hot pursuit behind them, they literally had no way out unless Yahweh God intervened on their behalf. And believer in Christ, this is where it gets personal for you. Had Yahweh not intervened in this moment, had the Israelites been destroyed here, had the enemy prevailed, the Messiah would have never come to keep the covenant of God to all of his people. Israel would not have made it. None of us would be gathered together in this room today. There would be no church and there would be no hope for any of us to be saved from our sins and the wrath that each of us deserves. And so you see here, brother and sister, included in the salvation of Israelites in this moment is the salvation of all of Yahweh's people for all time. This song tells the story of how God conquered both the Egyptians and the sea. And in doing so, it projects forward and looks ahead toward God's conquering of all of his enemies for all of his people for all time, which is ultimately fulfilled through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It looks forward to God's conquering all the enemies of all his people for all time, which includes your enemies, dear brothers and sisters. And we know that that's fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus is with us here, brothers and sisters. The story of Israel's salvation in this song prefigures, it it looks ahead toward the story of our salvation. And in the words of this song, we see an overarching glorious truth about our covenant-keeping God, which has great significance for us today. Here's the big truth for us. Yahweh's immense power and immutable faithfulness is the content of his people's joy amidst current and future enemies. That's the big truth for us. That Yahweh's immense power, his sovereign, unshakable control over armies and over all of creation, combined with his immutable, unchanging, never-failing commitment to act on behalf of his people, regardless of their enemies, should lead us to exceeding joy. This exceeding joy is an explosive joy. And so to put it another way, we could say that this explosive joy comes from knowing Yahweh's power and trusting Yahweh's faithfulness. Explosive joy comes from knowing Yahweh's power and trusting Yahweh's faithfulness. Church, I know that you face a whole host of enemies. Many of you have recently lost loved ones. 
Many of you have recently had your homes flooded. Perhaps you wrestled daily with seemingly unending doubts. Or if you're like me, the reality of your indwelling sin, whatever it may be for you, can at times rob you and cripple you from having joy in Christ. Maybe you're in a deep financial crisis or relational conflict and you feel like there is just no way out. The reality of living in a fallen world is that we are day by day, hard pressed on every side, facing enemies both inside us and outside us. This song for you, struggling Christian here in Exodus 15, is not some bumper sticker Christian platitude to slap on your pain as you try to ignore it. Rather, this song invites us to bring our pain to our covenant-keeping God who wars against our enemies and guarantees his final victory over them. It invites us to rejoice as we acknowledge our enemies and face them head-on because our covenant-keeping Yahweh fights on our behalf and has the final word over them. Church, may we be freshly thrilled thrilled in our hearts together at Yahweh's immense power and his immutable faithfulness and the hope that it shines like the rising of the sun against the darkest night over all of our enemies. And may that lead us to a rock-solid, unshakable joy in Jesus. And this song here in Exodus 15 reveals this truth to us through a series of three sections that show us three confidence-boosting truths about Yahweh. And these sections will guide us as we look at the text together. Section one is Yahweh's exaltation over all. And uh, being that this is a song, each of these sections have a little bit of a different tune to them. And so section one is Yahweh's exaltation over all, and it's to the tune of celebration. Section two is Yahweh's power over the enemy, and that's to the tune of all. And section three is Yahweh's faithfulness over the redeemed and it's to the tune of gratitude and so let's turn our attention together at section one yahweh's exaltation overall and once again it's to the tune of celebration coming from verses one through three now notice first of all if you look at verse one how the song rises from the hearts of the people the i will sing language here implies that this is not forced exaltation Those who experience God's miraculous salvation don't need to be coerced into singing about it and exalting God for it. Rather, it springs from the heart. Psalm 33.1 says that praise befits the upright and the Psalms are laden with the link between salvation, singing, and joy. God has given us singing as a gift to exalt him. Salvation that is experienced in the heart explodes in joyous praise. And notice also the reason that the people exploded in praise in this song. Look again at verse 1. It's because Yahweh has triumphed gloriously. And more literally translated in Hebrew, this phrase could be, could be translated as triumphed, triumphed. It's the same word triumph repeated twice. In the language, this is the strongest possible way that people could say that something was sure. It was a fact beyond absolute shadow of a doubt. The picture that we get here is almost as if the people are just grasping for the words to proclaim God's triumph in their salvation, but the words elude them. You ever been there in in praise through song 
where you just feel like you can't get the words out? I know I have. That's what's going on here. The words are eluding them as they're saying, Yahweh, you've triumphed, triumphed in our salvation. Picture this with me. They've just walked straight through raging water on dry ground, a sea of water on both sides of them, and witness a host of an army plummet into the waters behind them. And what can they say? Yahweh has triumphed, triumphed? You can see how their language can't quite express it clearly enough. Believer in Christ, how much more has Yahweh triumphed, triumphed for you if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? He's plucked you out of the raging sea of fire and hell and daily guards your heart against a whole host of attacks from the enemy. Mere human language can't even contain this type of glory. And recognize how the focus is also entirely on God's work. The prevailing notion is that Yahweh has done it. He has triumphed, triumphed. He has cast the enemy into the sea. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This salvation is all of God and none of the people's own efforts. When rightly considered, God's salvation absolutely eliminates any possibility of human pride. And not only would the Israelites have been foolish to exalt themselves or anything else in this moment, it would have been an utter impossibility. And you're probably thinking, well, obviously, think about what just happened to them. But let us not neglect how quickly the human heart forgets. You remember in Exodus 32? When these same people who were led through the sea on dry ground made a golden calf and exclaimed, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Are you kidding me? That golden calf. We're right to look at that and think how foolish it is. But we must also look at our own hearts and acknowledge these same tendencies. You know that urge that you might have to to check your likes on Facebook first thing in the morning before going to God and his word? That, That unction, that feeling that you have to shrink back? To protect your own reputation when, comp- when, uh, when conversation arises at work or, or with your family that compromises God's truth? What about that burning desire that you might have to, to, to get the next new thing? A new car, a new house, new iPhone, pair of shoes. So much so that it consumes your thinking? What about service to God when that becomes your idol? Can you relate to me in these areas, church? This all arises from the same sinful tendency that the Israelites had to forget God and exalt the gifts rather than the giver. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can all identify areas in our own hearts where these tendencies exist and rot away our joy in salvation. But that's why we constantly need to remind one another and recount the gospel through song and in conversation with one another. May we never grow over familiar with these glorious truths to the point that we stop joyfully proclaiming them to one another. When we recognize this, it explodes in specific praises to God that conquer human pride. These praises leave absolutely no room for human pride. And look here at verse 3 and see at the end of this first section that people specifically praise Yahweh for being a man of war. A specific praise arises in saying that Yahweh is a man of war and they exalt him for it. Sadly, some people 
shy away from these types of descriptions about God. They don't like to think of a God who wages war on anyone. But here's where we have to align our hearts with the truth of God's word rather than trying to align God's word with the inclinations of our hearts. Yahweh is a man of war. Think about it this way. You want those tasked with protecting you to be men of war. We would all be in real trouble if the soldiers in the U.S. Army were not men of war. What kind of soldiers would they be? You see, the fact that Yahweh is a man of war is something for us to rejoice in. It's something to be celebrated. Because he is on our side. The fact that he is a man of war is something for us to celebrate if and only if he is on our side. But the good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is that Yahweh, the sovereign king of the universe, being a man of war, is something to rejoice in because he is on our side. If he weren't, this fact would be something for us to be utterly terrified of. But by sending his son, Yahweh has proven that he is forever on the side of all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. He waged war on our sin by placing it on his own son so that we don't have to face his war against our sin. What good news this is. Jesus faced Yahweh's war against our sin so that we don't have to face it ourselves. And because of that, he is worthy of exaltation overall to the great tune of joy, explosive joy, and celebration. The word of God proves this truth in the next two sections of the Israelites' song. And the second section, Yahweh's power over the enemy, stretches from verses 4 to 12. And this one is to the tune of absolute awe. It's the outworking, if you will, of Yahweh being a man of war. As you look at verses 4 to 12, notice how it's a narrative. It tells the story of how Yahweh saved the Israelites by waging war on the enemy. But woven throughout this narrative are overarching truths about God that proclaim how he related not just to the, to the enemies of Israel in this moment, but how he relates to all of his enemies for all time. And so we must pay attention to it. Verses 4 and 5 begin the narrative by proclaiming specifically how God defeated the mighty Egyptian army. That mighty army was no match for the almighty God. Now, there's a certain verb or or action word form in the Hebrew language, one that carries great significance in this whole passage that implies it communicates an action being dispersed or distributed upon a variety of subjects. Let me explain. Here in verses 4 and 5, when Moses used the words cast, sunk, and covered to describe what happened to the Egyptian army, it's not just a simple matter-of-fact statement. Rather, these very words communicate that these actions were dispersed on each and every member of the Egyptian army. The idea here is that each and every one he cast into the sea. Each and every one was sunk in the Red Sea. Each and every one was covered by the flood. This describes an absolute destruction of each and every member of the Egyptian army. None could escape. This is important for us to remember as we continue. And looking then to verses 6 and 7, this destruction of each and every member of the Egyptian army is used as a backdrop to describe 
how God relates to all of his enemies for all time. Let's read again together verses 6 and 7. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Notice how the, how the focus shifts from how God related to the enemies of Israel to how God relates to all of his enemies for all time. And church, this includes your enemies as well. Verse 6 tells us that Yahweh shatters the enemy. And verse 7 tells us exactly how that happens. The glorious in power phrase in verse 6 implies that God does this for his own glory. It's quite literally his unyielding zeal for his own glory that accomplishes this victory. And this is paralleled by the phrase in the greatness of your majesty in verse 7. So verse 7 is, is like turning up the volume, if you will, on verse 6. So let's linger for a moment at the second half of verse 7. Recall how those who have not been in Narnia can't see how a thing can be both good and terrible at the same time. Well, the second half of verse 7 is the spotlight of the terrible of Yahweh in this song. Look at verse 7. First of all, it says, you send out your fury. Once again, the word send out has that dispersing effect to it in the Hebrew language. It tells us that Yahweh sends out his fury on each and every one of his adversaries. None who expose, none who oppose Yahweh are exempt from his fury. No one. The idea of fury here is a clear statement of God's wrath on his enemies. That word fury is an all-consuming righteous anger. The word for fury appears just 40 times in the entire Old Testament. And 39 out of those 40 times, it is used to, to explain specifically God's wrath. It's reserved for him, and it achieves results. Make no mistake about it, this fury achieves results. Think about it. When someone is furious, it's usually displayed through action. Such is the case here. The word picture, it consumes them like stubble. is quite literally saying it eats them. It eats them. This fury of Yahweh is an all-consuming anger against each and every one of his enemies to the point that it devours them. Devours them. This is terrible indeed. But it's also good. It's good because ultimately this devouring wrath that's reserved for Yahweh. He chose to reserve it for his own son. Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, was consumed under the weight of this devouring wrath so that the enemies of God could become his friends. Oh, dear brother and sister, what glorious good news this is. Each and every one of us in all of our sin and rebellion, deserves to be devoured by Yahweh's fury. 
But this fury was transferred to Jesus on the cross for each and every person who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Oh, friend, have you repented of your sin and looked to Jesus for salvation? If not, the word of God bears witness against you that you are his enemy. If you've not trusted in Jesus, you will one day be consumed by this fury for all eternity in hell. But there is time for you to repent, dear friend. Would you look upon the great mercy of God toward you, sinner? Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ while there's still time. Even now, if you would turn toward Christ in faith in your heart, repent of your sin, trust in him. He will show you that he's taken the fury from you, put it upon himself, and given you the right to rejoice in his victory over the enemy. Jesus, the Son of God, faced the devouring wrath as an enemy of God so that the sinful enemies of God could face for all eternity the joyous blessing as the sons and daughters of God. The fact that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God is even more glorious against this backdrop, this startling description of God's furious war against his enemies. Verses 9 and 10, the focus shifts back to the narrative. And notice here the the brash, ignorant confidence of the enemies of God. Take a look at verse 9. It's as if the Egyptians are saying, surely I will crush these puny Israelites again and again. Think about it. From their perspective, they had every right to be confident. They did. One of the world's most powerful armies against a band of runaway slaves. But they forgot that Yahweh is a man of war. It makes me think of of the scene in the first Avengers movie, if you've ever seen it, um, where Loki, who's one of the villains, is having a conversation with Tony Stark. Tony Stark is one, he's Iron Man, he's one of the heroes in the movie. And um, they're talking about an impending battle, and Loki says to Tony Stark, I have an army. Remember how Stark responds? We have a Hulk. There's no version of this where you come out on top. It's as if the Egyptians were saying, we have an army. And the Israelites could say in hindsight, we have a Hulk. And so much more than that, the almighty Yahweh is a man of war on their side. So how does Yahweh respond? Look at verse 10. He sinks them like lead. The almighty God controls the mighty waters to save his people from the enemy. And this leads us back to another overarching Glorious truth about Yahweh in verse 11. Notice the rhetorical questions there. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the second question, those three phases, phrases each reveal a different aspect of Yahweh's character. In the first, the word holiness is distinguished. It's as if it's stating majestic in the holiness. There is no other holiness like the holiness of God. This is a holiness that's reserved for him. Just like his fury is reserved for him, his holiness is reserved for him. It's central to his perfection. He is the standard of all holiness. And next, the word awesome is, that this word awesome, no other way to say it, it, it's awesome. In fact, um, 
It's actually, it's actually a verb. This is great. You're going to love this. This word awesome is actually a verb. It's an action word and it's used to describe God. We do this in English too, right? So think about it. If, if someone constantly fears over and over again, they fear, they fear, they fear, they fear and they fear over and over again. We just say, well, they're, they're a fearful person, right? Well, well, the verb translated here in this verse as awesome actually means to fear in Hebrew. But the implication is that this, this fear is being received by God. So the word awesome quite literally means that, that Yahweh is constantly receiving fear. He's constantly being feared. That's what awesome means to constantly be feared. Puts it in perspective. Next time we want to think about describing something as awesome, right? And with that definition, constantly being feared, we see how God is the only one that is truly awesome. And the miracles in the third, in the third phrase make us reflect on what God has done to, to display his glory and save the Israelites. He, inflect, he inflicted 10 miraculous plagues on the Egyptians and he parted the Red Sea. Talk about a miracle. In other words, Yahweh defied nature to show his supernatural commitment to his own glory and the salvation of his people. Now, with that, who is like this distinctly holy, constantly being feared, nature-defying, miracle worker, man of war, Yahweh? No one. The idols of the nations don't stand a chance. The Egyptian army doesn't stand a chance. The earth swallowed them, verse 12. Your enemies, church, don't stand a chance. And because of Yahweh's holiness, awesomeness, and miraculous power, your enemies don't stand a chance at ultimately destroying you or thwarting your sure salvation. This section powerfully proclaims Yahweh's power over the enemy. Christian, you need not fear though a whole host of enemies surrounds you. His sheer power will see to it that he will defeat them and may we rightly and humbly fear him and recognize that we are to be in awe of him with great confidence. But that victory is only half of the equation. Oh, what glory is found here in the third section of the song, Yahweh's covenant faithfulness over the redeemed. And this section spanning verses 13 to 18 is to the tune of gratitude. Look at verse 13. It states that God leads and guides his people in his steadfast love. This communicates that his steadfast love is the engine that powers his leading and guiding. And the word here for steadfast love is very common in the Old Testament. It's literally used hundreds of times. Perhaps you know it. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed can literally be understood as covenant faithfulness. That's the idea here in steadfast love. Hesed, translated steadfast love in your Bibles, is Yahweh's surefire commitment to act on behalf of his people as the, as the sole basis of his promise to them. It's his covenant faithfulness. It is a really glorious word. It's, it's from this word hesed that the Hebrew language actually gets its, gets its word for stork. Yeah, the bird stork. Think about the steadiness of a stork, right? The stork has constant migration patterns. It can be counted on. It's like clockwork. Year in, year out, the stork's migration patterns are constant. It's faithful. How much more faithful then is God's hesed toward you? 
It's his clockwork covenant faithfulness to act on your behalf that you can count on with great confidence. This is meant to assure you in the midst of your enemies that you can count on God to lead and guide you through. And notice here too, there's two different words, led and guided to talk about how he acts this chesed on behalf of his people. Guided turns up the volume on led. Um, There's this game we play at youth camp over at Crossway Church. Teens, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Um, There's this game called Minefield. And it's a great game. If you ever come to youth camp, you got to watch this. Um, So in this game, Minefield, the two kids are paired up. One is blindfolded and the other, his partner, is going to lead him across this patch of grass that has water bombs all over it. Teens, you, you know this game. Um, and, and as he goes across, there's, there's these water bombs. He can't step on them. He'll lose, he'll lose points. There's another guy from another team ready to nail him with a water balloon from the side. And, uh, being blindfolded, he would be in real trouble. But the, the rule is that the person who's leading him can only stand there and give him commands. He can't touch him. So he can just say like, go here, turn right, turn left, step back, watch out. He's throwing it. Right. And th- those are the things that he can do. So led here in verse 13 is like that kid telling his blindfolded friend where to go. He can't put his hands on him. And without it, the blindfolded kid wouldn't stand a chance. But there's still some difficulty to it because he can't see all of these these water bombs on the minefield. But imagine if that friend could grab a hold of of his blindfolded friend's shoulders and lead him through, guide him through. How sure would their victory be then? That's guided here, church. It's as if God isn't just giving verbal commands to avoid the enemy, but rather he's taking a hold of our shoulders and blind as though we may be to the attacks against our souls. He's walking us through the minefield and assuring our safe passage. We can't see all the enemies around us, nor can we see all those up ahead, but we need not fear. Because God doesn't have a blindfold. He sees them all. He knows them. And he's placed his hands firmly on our shoulders. And he's guided us. He is guiding us day by day. Gets even better. Do you remember how the word send out in verse 7 implies a distribution so that none of the enemies of God are exempt from his fury? Guess what? The word guided uses the exact same strategy. It implies a distribution so that none of the redeemed of God are exempt from his guidance. I don't know exactly what enemies you face, brother and sister. I don't know what you thought of earlier when I mentioned your enemies. But I can assure you of this. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are, the word of God bears witness to you that you are a recipient of his clockwork covenant faithfulness, of his chesed. And he has promised that he will accomplish your safe arrival all the way to heaven, even when you don't feel it, especially when you don't feel it. God is grabbing a hold of your shoulders and leading you through, and he will count on it. Count on it. Don't let your own feelings make you disbelieve this truth. Fight against that spirit of unbelief. 
Count on it. He will guide you through all the way to heaven. He's promised it. I don't care what enemies you deal with. I don't care what plagues your mind. I don't care what your indwelling sin is. If you have trusted in Jesus, he is day by day guiding you with his hands firmly placed on your shoulders and you will make it to heaven. It's a fact. Count on it. 1 Corinthians 1.8 states that Jesus will sustain you till the end, guiltless, no condemnation in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Israelites were confident of this. Take a look at verses 16 to, verses 14 to 16. The enemies that they're proclaiming victory over here are enemies that they hadn't even faced yet. The inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, the, the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan are enemies that still stand in their way on the way to the promised land. But yet they already proclaim their victory over them as if it's already a done deal. And notice the vividness of the description too. They were surely confident of their victory. The people tremble. Plagues, pangs have seized them. They melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. They are as still as a stone. They hadn't even faced these people yet. But they already know that they stand absolutely no chance whatsoever. God's covenant faithfulness to the Israelites drove them to unshakable confidence in God's conquering of their future enemies. Their future enemies. They knew that their future enemies didn't stand a chance against the power of Yahweh. And neither do the future enemies of all of the redeemed. Brothers and sisters, We don't need to fear the future enemies that we can't even see yet because God has already proclaimed his sure victory over them. Let us not be mistaken. It is our reverent fear of God that drives us, that gives us the ability not to fear the future. Notice the ability or notice the fear that overtakes the future enemies of Israel in verse 16. This is very different than the righteous reverent fear that the word awesome communicated in verse 11. There's only two possible responses to the sheer power of the man of war, Yahweh. Reverent fear or terror and dread. Both the righteous and the wicked fear God, but the experiences are clearly different. The righteous fear the power of God while the wicked dread it. The righteous fear it and rejoice because God is on their side while the wicked fear it and cower because he's against them. The righteous fear draws the righteous toward God. The fear of the wicked makes the wicked hate God and turns them away from him. Which fear do you have for God, friends? We are to rightly fear the power of God. But because of his surefire covenant faithfulness, we don't need to fear the penalty of that power. Power without penalty leads the righteous to reverent confidence, while power with penalty leads the wicked to dreadful dismay. We should fear the power of God, but we don't need to fear the power of that penalty. And with that, may that draw us to unshakable confidence in God's power to conquer our enemies. And uh, this, this grand truth is solidified in verse 17 and the end of verse 16. Look at verse 17. Or, sorry, look at the, look at verse 16, where it says that he's 
purchased his people. He's literally bought them for their own possession. If you believe in Christ, he's purchased you as his own. And that is the sole basis of your confidence in his conquering your enemies. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know when my last breath will be. I don't know what attacks will come from the enemy that will seek to destroy me. But here's one thing I do know. My own feeling of nearness to God and my own feeling of joy is way too fleeting of a basis to base any sense of hope in. If I were left to myself, I'd be thwarted day by day. And you know, you, you would too. But the fact that he has purchased you is meant to give you great confidence. He loves to show himself faithful by conquering your enemies and ultimately leading you to be home with him. He has purchased you. Verse 17, we see the great assurance of the ultimate safety of the redeemed. God himself will lead them all the way to the promised land. For the Israelites, it had its fulfillment in eventually making it to the promised land, to the mountain of Jerusalem. And for us, it has its future fulfillment in making it to heaven, to the throne of God. By his chesed, his clockwork covenant faithfulness, he, he, he will see to it that we will make it to heaven no matter what enemies may come our way. And the last word over all of this comes in verse 18. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Something quite awesome to note here. The phrase forever and ever in verse 18 is used only one other time in the Old Testament. And that's in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is later quoted in Hebrews 2, talking about directly about Jesus Christ. The reality of Yahweh's power over the enemy, the reality of his reigning forever and ever, his covenant faithfulness over the redeemed, and his exaltation over all is fulfilled through the work of Christ Jesus for all of eternity. Yahweh will reign with power over his enemies and with faithfulness over his redeemed forever and ever. And so, my brothers and sisters, I don't know what enemies you're facing today. I don't know what enemies you'll face in the future. But one thing I do know, and that God wants to assure you of as well, like an anchor for your weary soul, Yahweh's covenant faithfulness over you, if you are in Christ, will assure your victory over your enemies and your safe passage in to heaven. Quite literally, his good and terrible power over his enemies and his clockwork covenant faithfulness over his redeemed should cause our hearts to explode with exceeding joy, though we have enemies around us, though enemies still stand in our way. Rooted in this assurance, church, rooted in this assurance, you can talk honestly about your enemies. You can proclaim Yahweh's victory over them. Your joy should overflow into proclaiming his power to those you see in your homes, your offices, your schools, your communities, your own hearts. You can join the corporate song together with the church each and every Sunday with great exaltation and joy no matter what enemies you face. Bring your pain to him. 
He's promised his victory over it. Day by day, we together can rejoice no matter what enemies come our way and no matter what pain we face. The song of Yahweh's exaltation, power, and covenant faithfulness became a theme song for the people of Israel. May it become a theme song for our lives as well. I invite the worship team to come forward as I pray and uh, let us join together. Let us join together even now in this moment, exploding in explosive, expressive joy because of what God has done on our behalf in the midst of our enemies. And may this song be one that rises from our hearts to proclaim and to set forth our joy for the rest of this week and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, King Yahweh, for your power over the redeemed, or for your power over your enemies, to your for your faithfulness over the redeemed. Thank you that you have placed your hands firmly on our shoulders. You are not letting us go. You are guiding our safe passage all the way to heaven. The enemies that we have faced, the enemies that we are facing, the enemies that we will face stand no chance because of your victory over them. We give you all the glory and praise. Yahweh, may we explode in expressive, glorious, exalting joy. You will reign forever and ever, Yahweh. It's the mighty name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, man, our God is so good. So good. I'm just going to read three verses from Psalm 136. Church, I, I, I encourage you to read Psalm 136 today if you have a chance. It is the most repetitive psalm, probably even scripture, that talks about God's hesed, his steadfast love. It's a refrain after every single verse. I'm just going to read the first three and allow you to enjoy the rest when you get to it. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Let me run that back, actually. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Church, I just encourage you to meditate, to remember God's steadfast, covenant-keeping his faithfulness in this week as you uh, you strive to fix your eyes on Christ. Um, let me just pray for us quick. God, thank you so much for your love and your faithfulness. God, when we are faithless, you are faithful. And we ask that you would remind us by your spirit of your purchasing power, God. And for those who have not repented, that they would turn because of the fear, but also because of your great love that you have lavished, God, that is available for those who repent. Help us this week, God, as we remember your faithfulness towards us, and that we will rejoice even as we're uh, fellowshiping here after we are done, that we would encourage each other to remember your steadfast love. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Hope you have a great rest of your week, church, and you're dismissed at this time. Remember his steadfast love. Amen.